0: Go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. Tonight is kind of an exciting thing uh, for me personally. Hopefully it will be for you, too, in a couple of minutes here. But this is a a first in the unfolding history of our uh, young church. This is the first teaching in what will become our annual vision series. So in order to sort of remind ourselves why we exist as a church, how we're accomplishing this journey that we're on together... We will regroup once a year, every single fall, to further clarify and redefine what we're up to, and more importantly, why we're up to the things that we're up to. And interestingly, this is um, our first among, I hope, many vision series. Uh, This particular one has already been a great many years in the making. For those of you who know our story, Van City was planted from uh, the long-developing and shared vision of Bridgetown Church in Portland, and together we've been sort of planning and theorizing and even working out new ideas behind the scenes with trial and error for quite a while now and though Van City is still so new i'm personally convinced that the ideas that are unfolding across uh, the landscape of this ensuing series have the potential to sort of reshape our church and set a trajectory for years and years to come so to get there let's talk a bit about jesus now Much is said, obviously, inside and outside the church about who Jesus was and is and who he is not. He is perhaps most often spoke of within the context of the church as the Son of God, and he is. We know him also as the Messiah or the Christ or the Anointed One, the long-awaited King of Israel. But if you were a first-century Jew sitting in a synagogue on the Sabbath and in steps this fellow called Jesus of Nazareth to teach, chances are you would know him first and foremost as Jesus the rabbi. Rabbi, as many of you I'm sure already know, is a Hebrew word that means teacher. A rabbi was a type of teacher who would travel from town to town with a particular set of teachings or a particular understanding of the Torah, the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament. And that set of teachings and that understanding of the Torah were called his yoke. And Jesus was indeed a young and brilliant rabbi. In fact, one uh, or of the 90 or so instances in which Jesus is addressed throughout the Gospels, he is called teacher in upwards of 60 of those. So the vast majority of the time, people identify Jesus as teacher. And this bears repeating because the American church is sort of split in their tendency to either emphasize Jesus as the teacher and nothing more, or as Jesus, Jesus as the son of God and nothing more. And as such, if you grew up in or around a conservative wing of the church in particular chances are you heard a tremendous amount about Jesus as the son of God or as God himself and perhaps little to nothing about Jesus the teacher and consequently many of us carry in our mind this idea of this mystic divine messianic figure who is not also a brilliant teacher And the idea of following Jesus, this idea that's expressed and discussed constantly in the church, is irrevocably tethered to the idea of Jesus as a rabbi or as a teacher. So let's read just a few short stories to clarify. The first is in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, Follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further he saw James, son of Zebedee and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. Now, many of us sort of read this story and they we imagine that Jesus is making like a bad dad joke here. It's like the worst pun, like, I will send you out to fish for people. Hey, you guys are fishermen? Well, I'm going to teach you to fish for people. And I imagine that if that were the case, Simon and his brother would sort of roll their eyes and be like, oh my gosh, that was awful, but let's go see what this guy's all about. But actually, uh, the term fisher of men in the first century was a sort of common way of describing a great teacher, someone who catches the heart and the imagination of their audience. So in the story, Jesus is saying, follow me and I will make you into great teachers yourselves. Turn the page. Let's look at another one in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Look over to Mark chapter 3. Let's read another one, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, the apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the names of the 12 he appointed, and the list goes on. Interesting. So Jesus appoints 12. Now, that language in particular as to why he appointed them, that they might be with him. Remember that for later. And then he sends them out to preach and to drive out demons. Now, up until this point, what had Jesus been doing himself? teaching sure yeah I'm looking for something else in this context you want to try again don't get don't get scared because somebody said something that I wasn't looking for keep trying he sent them out to preach and to drive out demons what had Jesus been doing himself look for the echo yeah that's it preaching and driving out demons see we're all back in there everyone's confidence is back up no one's been deterred whatsoever and we're all going to keep answering my questions no matter what he appoints 12 that they might also preach and drive out demons. So the idea is that Jesus appoints 12 that they might be with them. It says that specifically and to preach, and to drive out demons, exactly what Jesus had been doing up to this point. Let's look at one more. Turn over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and let's read beginning in verse uh, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and said, "'Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves "'and take up their cross and follow me. "'For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, "'but whoever loses their life for me "'and for the gospel will save it. "'What good is it for someone to gain the whole world "'yet forfeit their soul? "'What can anyone give in exchange for?' For their soul. Now interestingly, I, if you're reading these stories, especially in rapid succession like we just did, you begin to detect something of a pattern in story after story after story. The call of Jesus is not what you might expect it to be if you grew up in and around the church, which would be something like, hey, believe that I'm the son of God and that I died on the cross for your sin and you can go to heaven when you die. Instead, we see Jesus' invitation again and again, come, follow me and be my disciple. Or put another way, come and apprentice me. Now that word disciple in Hebrew is a word talmudim. Can you say talmudim? That's great. We haven't been discouraged at all. You guys are awesome. It can be translated as a follower or student, but don't think follower as in like, you know, I follow so-and-so on Instagram and they don't follow you back and now you're you know, irrationally upset about it for some reason. And don't think student, you know, the, another way that word can be translated is like, oh, I go to Clark College and I study this or that. The word implies, in this case, Talmudim, it implies much, much more than either of those terms as they are at least commonly understood in English today. In fact, the English word... That best captures this idea of Talmudim is the word apprentice. So, to become a Talmudim of a rabbi meant becoming an apprentice to a master, to live within the shadow of their master for the most important years of your life. To dig a bit deeper, let's talk about this concept of discipleship in the first century. Discipleship wasn't invented by Jesus, nor was Jesus the first rabbi to have disciples, nor was he the last. We know from history that uh, Rabbi Hillel, years prior to Jesus, had 70 disciples himself. Rabbi Akiva, another famous teacher several decades after Jesus, had at least five disciples, and we read that 5,000 more or so were said to follow him. In fact discipleship as a concept does not even find its origin in Israel at all, but in Greece. Plato was a disciple of Socrates and on and on it goes. But the concept sort of spread across the Mediterranean and became part and parcel of the first century world. Now, 2,000 years removed from the first century, we, we often discuss discipleship in such a way that it becomes entirely stripped of its ancient context. So stay with me for the next couple of minutes of history. Payoff is on the way. Trust me or you have to now, you're sitting there, and if you get up, it's real obvious to everyone, just so you know. In the first century... Uh, Discipleship was actually the apex of the Jewish education system, of which there were sort of three distinct tiers. The first tier was called Beit Sefer in Hebrew, meaning the house of the book, and it was sort of like uh, our version of grade school, but in the first century uh, Jewish context. The book in question was the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. And students of Beit Sefer, they would learn all the ordinary grade, grade school things, reading, writing, and arithmetic but they would also commit the Torah to memory. So the first five books of the Old Testament memorized completely, uh, which is pretty impressive for a grade school kid, I think. The vast majority of Jewish students completed Beit Sefer and thus concluded their education entirely around age 12 or so, and you're done with school forever. The girls would then be married and begin families by age 13 or 14. This is the ancient world people. We don't have to adopt all the things this in particular, can stay in the ancient world. Um, and the boys would begin apprenticing their fathers in the family business. Hence, Simon had become a fisherman. But the very best students would continue on to the second level of education, which is something called Beit Talmud or the House of Learning. And this school was uh an extension of the synagogue. It was for men only, ages 12 to 14, and here students would learn from a full-time teacher, someone whose only job was to teach them all day long. And they would memorize all of the Old Testament. That's Genesis to Malachi, steel trap, committed to memory. Now, when the house of learning was complete, so was your education. You made it to level two, that's pretty impressive. You now have the Old Testament memorized. You don't have to go to the synagogue and look at the scroll anymore. That's a bonus, you know, it's just practical, way to go. But for the best of the very, very best, that one in a 100 beyond exceptional student, there was an opportunity to uh, continue your learning by becoming a Talmudim or an apprentice of a rabbi. Though even for the elite student, this was not an easy spot to secure. So the student in question would sit before their rabbi-to-be and that rabbi would grill them. How well do you know the Torah? How well is your memorization? Is there any gaps in it? What about the Talmud? How do you feel about all the laws? Uh, how do you feel about Rabbi Hillel's take on the Nephilim? Like all sorts of questions like that. And if the rabbi suspected that this new prospect might indeed have what it takes, the intelligence, the acumen, the work. Ethic, Ethic and the faithfulness to one day become a rabbi themselves and that rabbi would say something like come and follow me be my disciple now the newly appointed disciple has become a talmudim themselves they have three specific goals the first is to be with their rabbi remember back to that line from mark he appointed 12 that they might be with him Because apprenticeship is a 24-7 gig. In fact, the apprentice would follow their rabbi all over Israel every single day, spending every single waking and sleeping, for that matter, moment by their rabbi's side. You had breakfast together. You stopped for the same lunch. You sat together at dinner. You called it a night in tandem, always with your rabbi, all day long, every single day. In fact... One well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. An apprentice would follow his rabbi from town to town, down the ancient dirt roads of Israel, out in the desert. And by the end of the day, with any luck, an apprentice who was covered in the dust of their rabbi was an apprentice who was following well. So the first role of the apprentice is to be with their rabbi. The second goal of the apprentice was to become like your rabbi. You know, Jesus has this great quote about the way that a student is never above uh, the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And this is the heart and soul of apprenticeship, which brings to mind the striking dichotomy because in the culture of the modern Western world, uh, personal autonomy is sort of our chief aspiration or this idea of being true to ourselves is the highest attainable goal. But in discipleship, the idea is to become utterly and completely like someone else, That's not you. The apprentice would emulate their rabbi's every move, the way he spoke, the way he behaved, his habits, his way of thinking. The disciple was to become like their teacher in every way conceivable. Today, we tend to sort of divorce belief from practice. We prioritize often uh, believing the right things over doing the right things. But to Jesus... Such an idea would be completely unheard of. Learning the Bible is actually the easy part. Living the Bible is the true test of the apprentice. Or put another way, doctrine comes easily, but learning to be a human is a challenging thing. So... The first goal was to be with your rabbi. The second goal was to become like your rabbi. And finally, the last goal of the apprentice was to do what your rabbi did. So think back to that line we read in Mark's gospel. He sent them out to preach and to drive out demons. The entire premise of discipleship is predicated on the notion that one day the apprentice will become a teacher themselves or will become a rabbi after years of following your rabbi around israel if you were uh, to complete your apprenticeship your rabbi would turn to you and say something like now go and make disciples meaning you are now a rabbi yourself if these are the three ideas of first century discipleship be with your rabbi become like your rabbi do what he did. Let's carry this idea into 2016 and talk a bit about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth today. They are actually the same exact three goals, so it's easy enough for you. Stay with me. Our first goal is to be with Jesus. In fact, I would argue that this is the first and most important goal of the disciple, to spend every moment of every day in the presence of of Jesus himself and this of course begs the question how does one do that exactly we are not Peter or James or John we cannot physically follow Jesus as he walks around Israel Jesus is in the language of the scriptures at the right hand of the Father so how can we be with Jesus at all today well If you know the story, you know that Jesus leaves the disciples with these words, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And then later, in the exact same story, Acts chapter 2, just a few weeks after Jesus has left the disciples, the Spirit comes. And in that story, he's called the Spirit of Jesus. This means that the first... And primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. That is the baseline for life in the kingdom of God. And it's something Jesus himself talked about in one of his most famous teachings. Oh, geez, I need to back up to read this one. It's a lot. Um, He writes, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. If you do not remain in me you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers such branches are picked up thrown into the fire, and burned if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you this is to my father's glory glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my what disciples, disciples. jesus metaphor to describe the way in which we are with him is that of a branch abiding or acting in accordance with the vine out of which it grows. The New Testament describes the same exact idea with all sorts of language. Paul calls it prayer without ceasing, for example. Um, Our Catholic brothers and sisters call it contemplation. Um, The famous medieval mystic Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. Uh, Theologian Greg Boyd calls it being present. Simply, on this idea with many names, author Dallas Willard writes this, and and stay with me, this is a bit dense, but it's uh, tremendously helpful. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new, grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star Of our inward being if you remember nothing else take that one home I didn't write it so I can tell you to do that the point is that living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the presence of God all day long is something that takes a tremendous amount of practice and disciples of Jesus throughout history have used something called the spiritual disciplines or what we will call here at City the practices of Jesus as the means of practicing this. So things like silence and solitude or prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, Sabbath rest, Sunday worship, what we're here doing now. These are time-tested ways of abiding in the vine, as Jesus put it, presenting ourselves to God throughout Every moment of every day, every week, saying, here I am, God, I'm here, I'm present, and here you are, God. You are with me, and I am with you. The question is whether or not we are present. God is always here, are we? And let me tell you something, if you're new to uh, following Jesus, this idea of discipleship, if you're new to the spiritual disciplines, I cannot possibly oversell the value of what it means to practice the presence of God. Because the best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. You, you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? The best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. So goal number one, be with Jesus. When we work to immerse ourselves in the presence of Jesus, the apprentice works to then become like Jesus. And this is a process that we once commonly referred to as sanctification in theology or in church vernacular. More often these days we call it spiritual formation. Dallas Willard again defined the concept thusly. Spiritual formation is the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus our teacher and the interesting thing about spiritual formation is that it isn't a uniquely christian concept you know it's a human concept meaning we're all being formed by something human beings are not static things you know we exist in this complex chaotic dynamic sort of state we are all becoming someone over time we are all being formed by something over time or put another way we are all disciples of someone and something. The question then is, who or what? Who are you becoming like? If you were to plot the trajectory of your life 20 years into the future and imagine what you might find, could it possibly be Jesus, obviously expressed through your personality and your gender or whatever, or is it something else entirely? And I won't presume to speak for each of you here, but for myself and I imagine a great many Of you guys i would very much like to grow and mature into someone who is like jesus someone who is free from anxiety someone who is unhurried and unstressed someone who has power over evil mastery over their habits who has um, full uh, wisdom and kindness i want to become the sort of person who lives the sermon on the mount not just looks at it and memorizes it and studies it that great collection of jesus most famous teachings i want to become the sort of person for whom that set of teachings is second nature of course i love my enemies what else would i do kill them or bomb them of course i love them of course i live simply and with radical generosity what else would i do keep all my money and my things for myself of course i live a life free of anxiety and worry god himself is my father, and that to be clear, that's not where I am right now. I want to be that type of person. And if you're hearing this and you're thinking, "Oh, wait, that's that's possible. <laughs> we can do those things. Um, how? How do we do that?" Well, the idea is that we're going to be teaching on that uh, in great detail through the coming weeks. The way that we are transformed to be more like our rabbi. But for now, here's the process summarized in a single line. It takes a life built around practice, carried out in community. In fact, as you'll see in the coming weeks, we've been sort of planning to restructure the way we do church around the very idea um, of practice for long before we actually even had a Sunday gathering. So this is super exciting for me. So be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then finally do what he did. Remember, the entire premise of apprenticeship builds to the moment when the apprentice carries on the master's work themselves. And the work of Jesus was to usher in the kingdom of God. The thing that we talked about the last couple of weeks, Jesus' kingdom work actually can be parsed out into 10 categories. There is uh, preaching the gospel. This is, there it is. Preaching the gospel teaching the way, or Jesus' set of teachings, healing the sick, casting out demons, peacemaking, doing justice, eating and drinking with people far from God, one of Jesus' favorite pastimes, praying, prophesying, and standing up against religious and political hypocrisy and pride. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, your goal is to learn how to do all of that, all of those things, Um, I I warned him that I was going to use. Kyle, thanks for being right there. You helped remind me. My friend Kyle here, he works at a tattoo shop down the street. And at their shop, they have this young lady who is an apprentice. It's convenient for me as I'm talking about this this evening. Um, And in theory, she's there day in and day out learning everything there is to know about tattooing and what it's like to work at Hopeless Inc. The idea is that when her apprenticeship concludes in like a year, a couple of years, whatever it might be, she won't simply know everything that there is to know about the world of tattooing, but that she will be perfectly capable of tattooing someone herself. In the same way, the goal of an apprentice to Jesus is not simply to know the Bible well and to know Jesus' teachings backward and forward. It's to do what Jesus did, to work for the kingdom of God, to come to Vancouver and to the world as it is in heaven. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. Now, uh, before we end tonight, let me just point something out. If you've been at Van City even once, you've probably noticed we talk quite a bit about following Jesus. But what does that mean, really? It's something that we say so often, it sort of loses all of its uh, meaning. It means this. Following Jesus is to live in constant pursuit of these three goals. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he did. Following Jesus does not work as a hobby. It does not work as an aside to whatever you believe to be the main aspect of your life, your career or your hobby or your dream or your family. For the apprentice, following Jesus is the main aspect of life. If you ask many self-identifying Christians today what it is that makes them so, many will answer the question with a statement of belief. So if you come up to your average Joe or Jane on the street and say, "Uh, you're a Christian, why? What makes you a Christian? They might say something like, well, I believe this and this and this, and thus I am a Christian. The earliest disciples of Jesus called themselves followers of the way. So for them, following Jesus wasn't simply believing the right things about God and the Bible. It was about living a, a way of life in this new reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God. And each of you is invited by Jesus himself into this new kind of life. But I want you to notice a few things. The invitation of Jesus is to become an apprentice not a Christian. Remember in Mark 8, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, come and follow me. In fact, the word Christian, if you know, shows up a measly three times in the New Testament, all three of which it appears as sort of a pejorative title that's assigned to disciples as an insult by someone outside the church. On the other hand, the word disciple, which was favored by Jesus himself and by his followers, appears 268 times in the New Testament. And it may seem like semantics to you or, or, you know, splitting hairs over words, but what is the difference between a Christian and a disciple in our modern context? For many in America, the term uh, Christian simply means that you believe certain broad concepts about God or Jesus, maybe you even go to church, and you try to live a semi-moral life. In my estimation being a christian is often about jesus following you in the western world you know he sort of follows you around your life he offers help when you're in a pinch he acts as a sort of courier to send thoughts and prayers out to someone when they're in need he helps you feel better when you're down he blesses you when you're feeling really good and so on and a disciple on the other hand follows jesus And I realize uh, statistics are not like a metaphysical truth or anything, but a recent Gallup poll revealed that 76% of Americans claim to be Christians. Uh, Alternately, a number of independent surveys all put the number of Americans who are actually following Jesus, based on the kind of criteria we're talking about this evening, at around 8%. Um, and that's down quite a bit. In 1991, it was 30%. And sure, I, I realize statistics provide imperfect numbers. that They're not metaphysical proof of anything. But the point is that we've somehow created this weird cultural landscape in which it's possible for someone to be a Christian and not an apprentice of Jesus. Imagine uh, this young lady that I brought up that works with my friend Kyle at the tattoo shop. Uh, she claims to be a tattoo artist because she believes in the method by which tattooing takes place. And she doesn't show up to the shop. She doesn't practice. She hasn't learned anything. She doesn't listen to anybody. And then uh, she's like, I, I can do it. Let me, let me tattoo you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let her, would you? You're shaking your head. No, you wouldn't let her. Maybe someone would if it was free or something like that. I've done worse. Um, the idea of a, of a Christian, though, who is not an apprentice would baffle the authors of the New Testament. In fact, to them, there's sort of two groups of people Uh, Think back to what we read in Mark chapter 8 about he called the crowds to him, the disciples and the crowds. And when you read disciples in the New Testament, don't think of just the 12, you know, the apostles only. Jesus had hundreds of disciples, uh, young and old, male and female. But this divide between the disciples and the crowd, especially in Mark's gospel, is this literary device to sort of ask the reader, To which group do you belong? Are you a face in the crowd? Or are you a part of Jesus' inner circle? This is a question that more than 2,000 years later is still every bit as piercing as it is on the pages of Mark's gospel in the first century. One more Dallas Willard quote before I have to start paying royalties to him. (laughs) The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And amazingly, get this, this is an invitation that is open to everyone, every man, woman, and child. Think of Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever means Whoever wants to be my disciple. And remember what we said about discipleship in the first century just a while ago. Something that was meant for only the best of the very best, three tiers up, the education system. So imagine this famous professor. I don't know who's a famous professor. Imagine some famous professor tweeting something like, Who wants a full scholarship to Harvard? No strings attached whatsoever. You don't even have to have a high school diploma. Just direct message me and I'll set it up for you. It's absolutely unheard of. So if you hear all this and you imagine like, oh, well, sure, the invitation's up for everyone, but good grief, man, I'm not the sort of person capable of all it takes to become a disciple. Well, join the club. We call our club the church. You're sitting in it right now. And make no mistake, that is what the church is. It's this messy, flawed, motley crew of brothers and sisters learning awkwardly sometimes what it means to follow Jesus together. Whoever wants to be my disciple means whoever wants to be my disciple and that includes you and i regardless of who you are or what you've done or where you're at or how unqualified you imagine yourself to be you have been invited to apprentice jesus and to experience the life that he offers something he himself called life to the fullest this means that you can learn get this you can learn from jesus how to be with Jesus, how to live in awareness of and connection to his spirit at all times, how to become like Jesus, the kind of person who's set free from worry, from greed, from lust, from hate, from fear and anger, all the things that sort of distort our humanity. You can learn how to do the kingdom work that Jesus himself did, living a life of meaning and purpose that's larger than yourself. This Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' Manifesto for the Kingdom of God, It's not just a set of unattainable ideals, which many of us sort of read it as by default. And listen to me, this is not something that will just happen. You understand that Christ-likeness is not natural. If you show up to church every single Sunday and you even read your Bible, you will not suddenly be made into the image of Jesus. It takes a life built around practice. In fact, you know, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm often struck by the messiness that's built into it. You know, Jesus teaches on conflict resolution because he presupposes that his disciples will have conflicts. He teaches uh, enemy love, presupposing that his disciples will have enemies. He teaches nonviolence because he assumes that the, his disciples will face violence. He teaches about purity because he assumes that we will lust. He teaches about freedom from worry, assuming that we will have anxiety about money, and the list goes on and on and on. Even so, it's still, I think we can all agree, a very high bar that Jesus sets. But if you pay attention, you'll notice that Jesus begins and ends this collection of teachings with this idea of practice. So just before Jesus begins his commands, he says this, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. After he's done teaching, he ends his sermon by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man, and Jesus goes on. So the sermon begins and ends with the idea of practice, meaning Jesus assumes this way of living is going to require a lifetime of practicing it out. In fact, anyone who would like to become good at anything, you know, a musical instrument or a sport a profession, a skill set, whatever, knows that it takes a great deal of practice to do so. Now, listen to me when I say this. I'm not talking about trying. Trying is something very different. I'm not saying get out there and really try hard not to lust this week or really try hard not to worry and try your darndest to love your enemies, those darn enemies. I'm assuming all of you have a ton of them. Um. Practice is about training, not trying. So uh, my friend John Mark at Bridgetown, he loves to use this analogy of marathon runners. I'm just going to steal his, even though I know nothing about marathons. I've heard him say it enough that it makes sense. So imagine that you're, you're out of shape and you know, you've never run a day in your life or whatever, and suddenly you decide, for whatever reason, I don't know why you would do this, but you decide that you would very much like to run a marathon. So you wake up the following day, never run, really out of shape, and you attempt to run 26.2 miles and you try really hard, and everyone's around you going, you can do it, do your best, what, what happens? No. Yeah, you collapse or die or whatever, you know, <laughs> I'm assuming. You die, even if you try really hard and people are right there, you know, like leaning over while you're on the ground. You can do this, you can do it. You're still dead. Um, but <laughs> if you woke up the following day and you attempt to run one mile, well, that will still be really hard, but maybe you could do that. And then you try two. And then you take a day off, and then you start the whole thing over again, and then you slowly begin to change your diet and your habits. Basically, you train, and eventually, over a very long period of time, you will be changed. You will transform from someone into someone else. You become the sort of person for whom running 26.2 miles may be tough, sure, but it's well within your capacity as a human being. The problem is that many of us do not approach our discipleship to Jesus in this way, Would you agree? For me to stand up here on a Sunday and say something like, hey, Jesus taught us to love our enemies and not to worry and not to lust. So get out there and try really hard to do that this week. It's, it's kind of akin to me standing up here and saying, Jesus wants you to run 26.2 miles. Go try really hard to do that. And maybe a few of you can. I don't know what you guys are capable of. Uh, maybe a few of you would actually try something like that. Chances are most of you would be deeply discouraged and the ones who tried would crash and burn. The way of Jesus takes practice. It does not come natural. It takes training over a lifetime, practice in community. So imagine like Luke Skywalker, for example. He, he arrives on the swampy surface of Dagobah. I'm creating it in your imagination right here. Um, and he finally finds Yoda, and he hears, okay, if you, I'm not going to do the impression. Like, That's one I'm working on. I actually tried it when I was running the sermon. I was like, no, no, no. no. So I'm <laughs> Yoda says, okay, you want to become like a Jedi? Here's the thing. Listen to these lectures on Sunday night, read this book, and you'll be a Jedi. Uh, be a Jedi, you will. <laughs> and, uh, or, or imagine it like this. Uh, imagine Mick saying to Rocky Balboa, also not going to do the impression of Mick, if you want to beat Apollo Creed, l- here, listen to these lectures on a Sunday night and read this book, and I'm sure when you get to the fight, you'll knock him the heck out, you know? Of course, if you've seen Rocky or you've seen The Empire Strikes Back, you realize in context such a notion is absurd. And yet, our churches often resemble, you know this well, I'm doing it right now, lecture halls more than any sort of place where training takes place. And we want to change that. So, to end tonight, what does this have to do with the vision of Van City Church? So, first, a very brief history. Van City was planted out of this vision to be a people in a place, is how we described it, through this idea of missional communities. What Cam stands up here week after week and tells you guys about and about and about again and again, because we want you to understand why we're here in the first place. It's a story that um, I've been a part of personally for years now within the family of churches that planted us. Some of you, I know, have been a part of that story as well. The idea was to shape this church, which is a macro community, into a community of smaller communities that would then spread out across the city, in this case, Vancouver, each smaller community sort of organized around a common shared mission. Along the way, each group would inevitably do community and discipleship, the other two non-negotiables of following Jesus. Um, in uh, the context of the church now that's a journey that's been going on for five years before we planted this church it was the journey that birthed the idea of van city in the first place and uh, we've learned a lot in these last uh, few years much of it we've learned the hard way some things have worked wonderfully some things haven't eventually we began to sort of wonder if this is indeed the right idea but sort of in the wrong order you know we 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 wondered if the idea of mission before discipleship is sort of the cart before the horse, as it were. One of the founders of the missional community movement, this gentleman called Mike Breen, has been saying for a couple of years now that if we can't figure out discipleship, the entire missional community movement will die. Um, Because in his words, you can't build missional communities out of non-missional people. Um, so, we began to ask behind the scenes, long before we even had our own Sunday gathering, but Van City was very much on the horizon, is this the right idea, but in the wrong order? So, more than a year ago, we began planning and brainstorming and scheming and praying. And for the last year, um, some of us have been beta testing this new idea, this new way of doing community behind the scenes that we believe may be the next step in our journey and that's the best way to understand what we're up to we're still very much on the same journey nothing about that is changing at all but we need a sort of a new vehicle in order to continue along the same path that we've been on it isn't because the car that we used to get to the airport is bad, and that was a stupid idea. We needed that car. The car is wonderful. It was the thing that got us to the airport. It's just that now we need to get out of the car and get on the plane for the next part of our journey. And then we'll be talking about exactly what this new mode of transportation will mean for Van City throughout this vision series in the next few weeks. But for now, let's begin with some basic changes that are going to happen uh, immediately. First of all, mission communities will become Van City communities. Mission will absolutely remain a central aspect of the church, and of our communities. Our entire purpose of in Vancouver as it is in heaven will not change whatsoever, but we will re-architect our communities around this idea of practice. That line that if you show up to basics or you do a missional community training, you hear this line, a family of missionary disciples, um, it will become Practicing the Way of Jesus Together in Vancouver, which if you notice, it's all three of the same exact ideas, community, mission, discipleship, but I think said better and with discipleship front and center as the focus. Really, uh, this is all just language stuff. The real change is in the way that we will build our entire church around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus. And we'll discuss this in great detail later, but the basic premise Is that every two months or so, we will talk about one of the practices of Jesus. So spiritual disciplines like prayer or fasting or Sabbath. Or maybe one of Jesus' uh, teaching concepts like how to handle money or worry or sex. Or maybe one of the kingdom practices like healing the sick or doing justice and so on. We'll teach on it here for a few weeks on a Sunday. We'll talk about it. And then we will go to our communities and we'll practice it together. We'll experiment on it together. We'll play around with it. We'll learn. We'll do trial and error. And we will try together to practice the way of Jesus. What does Sabbath look like for a single mom? And what does Sabbath look like for a young student or a young couple? How do we confront anxiety as young professionals or as students? How does this work in an urban setting here downtown? Or how does that work in a suburban setting in East Vancouver? And City, in theory, our dream is that it will become this living laboratory for practice. Or, you know, like a, a dojo, a training center For apprenticeship to Jesus and we'll do all of it together because following Jesus is not something that can be done alone and I want to remind you guys the staggering awe-inspiring call of Jesus is that anyone who wants to be my disciple come and follow me any of us all of us are invited to apprentice Jesus